Well, sometimes, you know, the day doesn't go exactly like you expected. When you open your eyes and you put your feet on the floor and you're thinking a day is going to turn out one way, sometimes that is not the way it turns out by the end of the day, maybe even a couple hours later. Well, there was a man named Ted Brooks that, that had one of those days. And he uh, was learning to be a dog sled guide up in Alaska. And one morning when he was out there preparing and learning how to do it, the dogs took off a little bit too quickly. And he fell off the back and he landed in the deep snow. And of course he picked himself up and he started grumbling as he was dusting off the snow from himself, only to notice that there was a big giant shadow that overtook him as he was dusting himself off. And he turned and he noticed there was a very big, very mean looking grizzly bear just a few feet away from him. Well, the bear roared and then ran after him, right? So Ted Brooks takes off. Now, it doesn't take long for a bear to catch up to you because bears can run 35 miles an hour. I mean, people at best, eight. So like, it doesn't take long before he was, he was afraid he was gonna be dinner. And just about the time he thought he was gonna get snatched up, he was running away from the bear and he didn't notice, but he ran right off a cliff, right off a very steep cliff. And uh, he's flying through the air only to have a small ledge stick out and catch him. Huh. He's like, okay, relief, yes, relief. And he stood up and he went, I'm alive! And just then the ledge broke away. And now he's sliding down like he's on a, you know, a bobsled. He's sliding down this steep slope and they're, you know, dodging trees on one side and boulders on the other, screaming all the way until he gets to the bottom and he hits abruptly at the bottom of the cliff. <sighs> he takes a breath, surveys the surroundings only to realize he's on an iced over lake. And he can hear it begin to crack. And so he looks for the closest shoreline and starts lunging as the ice is breaking towards that closest shoreline. He finds what he thinks is a nice piece of solid ice that's going to support his weight. Only to discover, within a few seconds, he begins to sink. Well, that's when Ted Brooks pulls out his cell phone and dials 911, and these are the words that he hears. You are outside your coverage area. If you want to expand your service, please call back during normal business hours. Bad day for poor old Ted Brooks. We've had days like that, haven't we? Some of us are in seasons like that. Sometimes they last a lot longer than a day. The world is falling down around you. Life hurts. It doesn't look like it's going to get better tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. <clears throat> On those days when the bottom drops out, you basically have two choices. You can either choose to um, relieve your pain in a variety of bad ways and bad attitudes, or you can throw yourself at the feet of a loving and merciful Heavenly Father who knows everything about you and has all power to help you get through those days and those seasons. And of course, we're going to be studying the Bible, and it's going to push us down that path to go towards God in our trials, to find our support and our comfort and our to-do lists from Him when life hurts and when we are facing our next test. And James is going to tell us today exactly what you need, and some of you are in a trial right now, but some of you will be in a trial by tonight. So let's see what the Bible has to say and what James wants to teach us about how to handle 
our next trial. I'd ask you to turn with me to James 1, verse 2 to 4, and I'd like it if you'd open up your Bible. I know we put it on your worksheet, but you guys are coming to women's Bible study. Open up your Bible. Open up your device. Keep it in front of you. I'm only going to take you to one other passage than this, so you need to be here the whole day. We're going to read it a lot. Starting in verse 2, it says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we all understand this truth, and not just because, you know, it's in our Bible, right? But because you've lived life on the planet for a while, and you know that troubles, trials, bad days are inevitable, In fact, James even frames it that way. Did you notice he said, when you meet troubles, not if you meet troubles? He's trying to tell us this is going to happen. It's going to happen to you. Whether it's a huge one or a little one, it's going to happen to everyone. In fact, as Christians, you should expect it even more. Because in your Bible, in places like Acts 14, 22, and lots of other places, it says things like this, through many tribulations, you will make your way to heaven. Now, verse 3 calls it a test. It calls it a test. In fact, it calls it a test of your faith. And there are many tests in our Bibles, just a couple of them that I thought of in the Old Testament, a couple of tests, were like um, when God kept a bunch of the pagan nations in the promised land when the Israelites walked in. In other words, they didn't conquer everyone. Now, God is all-powerful. I mean, the 10 plagues had just happened. You don't think that he could not have wiped out everyone in the promised land or made them leave town and and leave the, the promised land? Of course he could have. But it says in the Bible that he kept some of those pagan nations there in order to test the Israelites, in order to teach them to fight, to be soldiers, to get them up and doing the job that needed to be done. So he purposely left some in the land for that very reason, okay? Another test in the Bible Maybe you don't think of it this way, but every day God allowed them to only take a single day's manna. They couldn't stockpile in their pantry. That's what all of us would do, right? I'm going to put a week, I'm going to put two weeks, I'm going to make sure I have a month of food. Then I can sit back and relax or I could take a trip or whatever. No, God said every day you only get enough for today. Your daily bread, interesting. Why did he do these tests? Well, he wants to make sure that God's people get stronger. He wants to make, that, make sure that God's people begin to trust in him more and more and more as opposed to themselves and their own brains or their own ways of doing things. He wants them to trust in him. And guess what? He wants the same thing for us. So we're going to look at this passage over and over, as I said, but I like to look at it from the 20,000-foot view because I think seeing it all together really helps us understand the purpose that God has behind it. So we're going to read it all again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." When we see it all together, we begin to understand that God has a bigger purpose for our bad days, for our troubles, for our Ted Brooks kinds of situations that we will inevitably face. Now, it reminds me of going to the gym. If I told you today, hey, if I just said, hey, let's go to the gym, okay, you would not be expecting a girl's day out. You would not be expecting that we're going to, you know, go on vacation. 
or a bachelorette party, right? We call it a workout. Why is that? Because it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. And you would have that expectation if I said we were going to the gym to work out, okay? Well, when we work out, we get lots of benefits, right? You look better, you feel better, you sleep better, your clothes fit you better, and usually you're more equipped to handle whatever comes in your day, emotionally and physically, if you do a little bit of physical workout, right? Well, God uses our trials to work us out spiritually as Christians. So I'd like you to see your pain as a spiritual workout. That's point number one. Looking at the whole thing, we need to see your pain as a spiritual workout. God has an intention and a plan. He's doing it on purpose to work us out. Now, just like there are benefits from a physical workout, I just listed them for you, so too a spiritual workout. And as I studied and as I thought through my Bible, I came up with a bunch of benefits that happen to us because we go through troubles. I have seven for you, okay? So you're going to go A, B, C, all the way to G, okay? You're going to have seven, and I'm going to give them to you real quick. Only a couple of them come from this passage. The first five don't. Here they are. The first one, letter A. <clears throat> In 2 Corinthians 12.9, it says that God uses trials to letter A, humble us. Humble us. Paul says here in that passage that he gets the thorn in the flesh in order to keep him from exalting himself. God was giving him some great revelations, some amazing things were happening to Paul, and he didn't want him to boast or be conceited. So he gave him that thorn in the flesh, okay? The next one is in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. This one says that our difficulties, letter B, grow our ability to help others. Grow our ability to help others. That's letter B. Grow our ability to help others. This is where Jesus turns to Peter and he says, hey, I know you're going to mess up and deny me, but when you've done that, I want you to turn and strengthen your brothers. Something about our difficulties helps us to help others better. The next one's found in 2 Corinthians 4. 16 to 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18, God says that our troubles make us, letter C, long for heaven. Long for heaven. This passage is the one that says we should look at things that are unseen, not things that are seen. We should look at things that are eternal and not things that are temporary. Okay? We're supposed to focus on the then and there, not the here and now. That's that passage there. You would recognize it if you saw it. The next one is in Deuteronomy 13.3. This one says that our tests, letter D, prove what we love most. They prove what we love most. And here Moses is explaining how false teachers and false teaching reveals to us if God's people will love him with all their hearts. That's what's happening in that passage. And the granddaddy of them all, you know, is this one, Romans 8, 28. That is our next one, Romans 8, 28, which says all the sucky things that happen to us. Um, letter E, always results in good. Always results in good. Our good and God's good, right? That's the classic passage. And I could take you to examples. Paul was in prison, and so people uh, were sharing the gospel more, it says in Philippians. And Stephanie told us last week, Joseph had all those horrible things happen to him. 
but God saved the nation because of all those horrible things that happened to him. Now, the thing is, sometimes we fail to look at our trials properly because we're looking at the backside of the tapestry instead of the beautiful and the good that's on the other side. We're looking at the side where there's knots and there's no design and, and there's threads sticking out everywhere instead of seeing what he's making that's beautiful on the other side of it, the good. And one writer said that we should never judge the worker or the work by the wrong side of the tapestry. See, our master weaver is making something gorgeous. We just can't tell from this side sometimes. Now, James is going to give us our sixth benefit in the passage that we're studying. And in verse 3, it's when he calls them tests, tests of our faith. Um, the only other place this term is used in your Bible is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And this is what it says. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, because they test the genuineness of your faith. That was 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. So another benefit that we get from the spiritual workout of pain is letter F, to prove we're real Christians. It's probably the most important benefit of all, to prove we're real Christians. Now let me explain this one for a little while. In the parable of the four soils, we have these four people that are hearing the gospel, right? That's what those four soils are. And in Luke 8:13 it describes that third group of people that are hearing the gospel. They've heard that Jesus saves, and it says they, quote, receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. You know, when people are tested, when they go through trials, they'll either stick with Jesus or they won't. And if they don't stick with Jesus in those horrible days and those bad times, it's proof they were never saved to begin with if they bail out on him in those moments. So you see, this is a very important benefit from our troubles. It tells whether we're real or fake, all right? And now in deciding if something is real or fake, it's also something we'd use to test diamonds. Now, if you were, and we're, I'm assuming we're all amateur gemologists, not professionals, but um, if you were to test your diamond, there are three basic tests you could see if it was real or fake. Okay, the first test, if you could take it out, the first test would be to drop it in a glass of water because diamonds are the heaviest thing on the planet, so they would sink. Fakes do not, right? Another thing you could do is breathe on your diamond. You can do it, it's okay. Real diamonds, they don't fog up. Fakes do. And the third test you could do is subject your diamond, somehow take it out and subject it to fire. If a diamond is put in fire, it will come out unscathed, where fakes and others will be burned up or scorched. Don't you love that? The diamonds stand the test of fire, and so does your Christian faith. If you, get, if you turn from God when your life is, you know, in the heat of the fire, then it proves that you were a fake all along. You might have been taking some of the benefits of the church, like the book of Hebrews talks about, but you're not really one of his kids. Now, our passage is going to give us one last benefit of trials, and it's going to be in verse 4. But I'm not just going to give you letter G, so just take a breath for a second. I want to talk about the terms that we have here in verse 4 before I give you that. It says, we have trials so we can be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Let's make some observations about those. Perfect. 
that first word. That means to be mature. You learned that in your, in your Bible study. It is the word teleos, or just right. You've heard it from this platform so many times, but you know, I think about Goldilocks, right? The porch is too hot, too cold. No, it's just right. It's perfect. It's just right. That's that word mature there. And in the book of Hebrews, um, the writer describes the mature Christian as someone who's able to digest solid spiritual food because they have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Hard times do that. Hard times allow you to grow in that discernment and be trained. Verse 4 also says, the tests make us complete. And we think of complete as W-H-O-L-E, right? Complete, whole. But it really also means sound and blameless. It doesn't just mean whole with a W. It means sound and blameless, and it's actually the word that's used of an animal that is fit to sacrifice to the Lord. You could bring it to the temple because it was an unblemished, it was an animal ready to be sacrificed to God, sound and blameless. So our tests also make us not just whole with the W, but holy, H-O-L-Y, right? Makes us both. And lastly, verse four says that our trials make us lack nothing. We will not be deficit in any character trait if we would allow and submit ourselves to the test that God sovereignly gives us. They're not the same as the lady next to you or the one across the room. But if you submit to the test God gives you, you will not be deficit. He will use it to mold and shape you and, and do the things he needs to do to your character. Now, when we put all of that together in verse 4, we come up with one more benefit of our trials, and that is letter G. It makes us fully grown Christians. Makes us fully grown Christians. When we get through whatever test God gives us, we will be more mature and fully grown. Now, as much as we all enjoy when our children are little, that snuggly ball stage, you know, the one where they fit right here under your chin, and they just smell so good, and they just curl up there when they're not crying for food or a clean diaper or sleep, right? That, that moment in time when they're just snuggled right here. We all love that. But you would really, I mean, there are people who say, oh, I just love the baby stage. I never want it to go away. Hmm. But you really would not want your child to stop growing at two months or three years or 10. And if you say, I just want them to stay my little girl forever, you do not yet understand the great joy that comes in watching them reach their developmental milestones. In fact, we set those milestones up to find out if a child is thriving, and it would be a tragedy if they didn't meet them, and if they stopped growing. We would be taking them to the doctor, oh, something's wrong, my child is not thriving, if they didn't meet those developmental milestones, if they did not reach them. I can tell you as a mom of over 26 years that it just keeps getting sweeter. Just imagine I mean, you missing out on the moment when that little snuggly ball recognizes you for the first time and smiles. If they don't grow up and mature, that doesn't happen. Or the day when they can recognize you when you show up at Kids Den and they're running to the door because they're so excited to see you. Mom, grandma, right? That's, that, that moment would be lost. Your joy in seeing them mature would be lost if they didn't grow up. And it does get better and better. You know, there are three people walking around on the planet that learned to tie their shoes, and I had something to do with that, right? And now they don't have to wear Velcro shoes. 
they get to wear nicer shoes. And I go, oh, nice shoes, right? Because they can tie them on their own. What about the day your child was able to go to the bathroom alone? Yes, rejoicing, right? That was joy when they met a developmental maturity milestone. Same with the day they could read. You know, we look at these letters and we go, oh, that is an R or whatever. But what if it was in Mandarin? If I handed you Mandarin and said, read this, it looks like squiggly lines. That's what it looks like to them. But at one point, they saw C-A-T, right? You would miss out on the joy of seeing them get to that stage. And the same is true with hitting a ball, driving a car. I know you're freaked out about that. But the day they drive a car, it's a big deal. They have reached a developmental milestone, and they're ready to be independent, more independent of you, even though you don't like it. It's too bad. It's the right thing to do for them to meet those. Now, here's another thing, probably the sweetest day is the day your child can finally understand spiritual truth and surrender their life to Jesus Christ. They can't do that as this little cuddly blob right here, but they can do that as they reach that level of maturity or the day you overhear them sharing the gospel with their friend or you see them using their gifts in the church that God gave them to serve. It just keeps getting sweeter. And it is to your heavenly father too when it's you that is reaching those maturity milestones. Trials are what gets you there. That's what grows you and makes you more mature and useful to him. Nothing grows us more than trials. And we get it, don't we? I mean, if you have a high school senior, she will more graciously handle the rejection of not getting into her college of choice if she has first not gotten the part in the Christmas musical that she wanted. If uh, your son has not made all-star baseball, if they weren't elected class president and they didn't get invited to that party, all of these lesser trials have made them more able to deal with the bigger ones. Your toddler that gets a goose egg on his head because he's learning to walk and there's this big bump right there, that helps him for five years from now when he falls off his bike and breaks his arm. Or your daughter who will someday have to go through childbirth. All of the lesser things help us go to the harder ones as we grow up. One writer said, the effect of testing rightly born is strength to bear still more and to conquer in still harder battles. I know that doesn't sound like something we want to sign up for, but really it is, because it's the maturing Christian that God shapes and molds to be the tool that as he passes by his tool chest, he goes, that's the girl I want for this, because they've been shaped and molded. You see, I said some people work out to feel good and look good, and right? But there are other people that work out because they want to join the police department or the Marine Corps or because they want to get that gig in Hollywood, right? Or because they're trying to break into Major League Baseball, okay? They're, they're working out because they want to be ready for the job. And we should be wanting to work out spiritually for that same reason because Our God's going to line us all up against the backstop, everybody in this room. And he's going to go, okay, I have important jobs to do this year. This year, before next summer, I have important jobs I want to do. Who am I going to pick to do them? I want it to be you, 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 you. I want a lot of us to be ready to have these more important jobs. So we embrace our trials not because we're masochists, because we want to see what God will do in us. He needs to work in us before he's going to work through us. And he's done it to thousands of his people before us. And a few of them, you know. I mean, Abraham, he worked on Abraham for 25 years. Joseph for 13. And poor Moses, man, he took 40 years 
and the University of the Almighty before God brought him up to the plate and said, okay, this plays for you. It was a long time he worked on them in their trials. But when they graduated, they were even more useful. So who is he going to call up from among us to do the things he wants done in Orange County in 2023? I hope it's a lot of you. So when you find yourself in the furnace, you need to see your pain as a spiritual workout, okay? Back in James 1, we're going to see some more of God's purposes for our pain. It's going to just jump right out at us, but we're going to read from the beginning again, okay? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing produces steadfastness. Now, another benefit of challenging times is that you would learn steadfastness. Steadfastness is the word hupomene. You've heard it a ton of times up here. It means hanging in there a long time under pressure. That's it. Hanging in there a long time under pressure. We have lots of synonyms for this. Perseverance, endurance, long-suffering. I like that one. I think that's an appropriate description because it's staying in the pain for an extended period of time. That's hupomene just staying there without complaint. God's going to grow your ability to endure like that as you submit to his tests. So point number two is we need to stay focused on endurance. Stay focused on endurance. And I mean inside your trial. Stay focused on your endurance. We talked about the spiritual workout and the physical workout, but let me ask you, how are you going to get to the end of the physical workout? What is the most important thing that you need? Is it good tennis shoes? A heart that's healthy? A treadmill that works? No. The most important and critical skill is that you have endurance. That's how you're going to get from the beginning to the end of the workout. The rest of the stuff, okay, it's helpful, but really you have to have endurance to get to the end. We don't just want to start the race, we want to finish the race. And in case you don't know it already, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It is a long-term race to the finish line over the long haul. And he wants us to not only start, but finish. We don't want to end up at the end of this whole thing and, and be like those seventh grade girls. You know the seventh grade girls, the ones that sit at the back of PE? The ones that are worried about their mascara and don't want to be too sweaty. And when you do the mile run when you were in seventh grade, they were just, you know, meandering around. You don't want to be them not in this case, okay? You want to be the one that finishes and runs all the way through the tape. I know they might be hip, but don't be them. This is not the moment to be them. Now, they do say, I've never been to it, okay? I must confess, but they say that the New York City Marathon is kind of like a big party. There are 28,000 runners that day, and a lot of them are wearing costumes, and there's huge crowds that line the streets. But when you get to mile 13, which is halfway, you have entered Manhattan, you've turned north, Central Park is behind you, and so is the finish line. And that's the point in which the crowd thins out and the party's over. You're about halfway through. And all of a sudden, you're feeling more like you're alone in this race. At mile 16, you begin to ache everywhere. You are exhausted, you're, you're numb, you're starting to feel like, okay, I'm not sure that I can really make it through this. All you wanna do is quit, but you're putting one foot in front of the other, you're still going, okay? But at mile 20, they say that's when you hit the wall. That's when physically and psychologically, you're just done. You just, 
all you can think of is quitting. You're like walking, stumbling by the first aid tents, and you're seeing all the runners that are laying on cots. And you're beginning to despair as you see them, and you're barely moving past them. And you're starting to think things like, I'm going to have to go home and tell everybody I know that I didn't finish this thing. And you're saying to yourself, stupid head, why did you even sign up for this? What were you thinking? You're lame. Okay? At that moment, you can't think about the fact that you got six miles left. All you can think about is the fact that you got to put one foot in front of the other. It's all you can do. You can't focus on the six miles. You can focus on, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. That's all you can do at that, the very end of that race is just keep putting one foot in front of the other because if you do that, you will cross the finish line if you just put one foot in front of the other. And sometimes some of you right here in this room are hitting the wall today. You barely made it here because your pain hurts so bad and you're in such a horrific trial and your heart is just breaking and you barely made it and all you want to do is quit. Don't. Please don't. Just put one foot in front of the other and we'll help you. Don't make me a liar, ladies. We will help you. We may not be there today, but we will help you. You're in our small group. We love you, like Pastor Mike talked about this weekend, and we are going to lovingly help you pick that foot up and put it back down again. And you know, it's you today. It could be us three weeks from now, but we're going to help you put one foot in front of the other. That is steadfastness right there, picking your foot up and putting it down. The only real way to get steadfastness in your life is really actually to go through trials. You know, when everything's great, pantry's full, everybody's healthy, nobody has zits, your family's all having Norman Rockwell moments every night, nobody needs steadfastness when that's happening, right? It's only when you're in trials that you will actually learn steadfastness. It's kind of like a knife sharpener. You know that thing, that, that big bar that sits in your block and you're like, I'm not sure what to do with this. And then you watch the cooking shows, you go, oh, that's what you do it, right? Okay. If you're like me, I watch them. How do they do it? Okay, you realize that the only reason that my tool, my knife is effective is because I'm scraping it against another object, a metal object. It's only because of the painful interaction that's happening with those two pieces of metal. Scrape, 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 scrape. That's painful for those pieces of metal. That's the only way I'm becoming an effective tool. That, that knife is going to go back in my drawer and do what I asked it to because of the painful interaction of the knife sharpener. So, I don't care if it's your parenting, your job, your marriage, you will not grow steadfastness unless you are inside a trial in those things and you're learning it as you go. You're learning on the job. Now, if we would take a peek inside the life of someone who was training for their first marathon and you were to look at their computer, you'd see that their social media probably and their Google histories is all about the best runners of all time, right? Because they want to have inspiration to go and do that marathon in New York City. They even might even make them their screensavers or something to be inspired by this person when they, you know, their screensaver comes up. Well, God has those too. He has a list of those marathoners too. The one passage I'm going to send you to is Hebrews 11, okay? So turn there with me. These are God's most accomplished spiritual marathoners. And he put them in scripture to give us inspiration, and through the whole chapter in Hebrews 11, talks all about their stories and accomplishments. But I'm going to have you go to the very end, verse 37 and 38, 
Because after they've done all these great things, verse 37 and 38 says this about this group of heroes. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and they suffered horrible trials. But then verse 39 tells us that they were all commended through their faith. They, they persevered and God was pleased with them. That's what that's trying to say. At the end of it all, he was happy with them. They were honored because of their faith, because of their trust in God. Chapter 12, verse 1 then says to us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Boy, does sin cling closely when you are in a trial. Isn't it just like right at the door? When you are in your worst moments and you feel like you can't go on, that is when sin is crouching there for you to grumble, complain, lay in your bed and weep and not come to Bible study, right? Lash out, shake your fist at God, why me, right? All of that sin is so close. But what are we supposed to do again? Instead, we are supposed to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then the writer of Hebrews shines the flashlight on, let's just say it, the best runner to ever live, the son of God himself, the perfect quintessential Christian role model, Jesus. Verse two says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, or the one who taught us to trust, what trust really looks like, who for the joy set before him endured persevered, had steadfastness, hung in there in a painful situation for a long time, the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. From him, we will gain all we need to be steadfastness. Let him be your lock screen. Let him be your post-it note. Let him be your inspiration to be more steadfast. But some of you are thinking, oh great, I would just love to do that, but you don't get my situation. You're right, I don't. I'm just going to admit it flat out because it's true. I've had my pain. My pain is different than your pain, but I have had pain, and pain is pain, and we're looking at this scripture. We know that we're still supposed to do the right thing, even if there's pain, but I have a great promise, a guarantee for you. I quote it all the time, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I go to it all the time in my brain. It's the promise from God that our good and loving Heavenly Father will not let us be in a situation that we can't handle. And it's not that we can't handle it by ourselves. It's that we can't handle it. We can handle it because of him. He does not put us in a situation that we can't handle without him. He's, he's there with us. And it says in that passage that he gives us a way of escape in order that we may be able to endure it. Whatever your trial is, whatever you think you can't go any farther in, he has a way of escape for you to get you out of it, maybe just to get you through it, the next hour, the next day. There's not one difficulty represented in this room or anywhere else that with God's help, we cannot survive. Now, I saw this kindness in a fresh way when I studied this time because one writer brought to my attention something. I've read the story tons of times, Jesus getting arrested in the garden. But they brought to my attention the fact that God gave the disciples, a way of escape that night because they were not arrested with Jesus. I was like, oh, huh, never thought of it that way. You know, Jesus stood alone in front of the 70 most powerful leaders in the Jewish nation, the Sanhedrin that night, all alone because everyone else bailed. 
But only a few months later, the disciples are standing before the same 70 men, except now they're full of boldness and courage. Yes, because they had the Holy Spirit, but also because they had learned steadfastness, even on that very night, the worst night of their life when Jesus was arrested, right next to him, and they took off. They learned steadfastness through their trials as well and were ready to be bold the next time. Okay, so we need to stay focused on endurance, which means just picking your foot up and putting it down, picking your foot up and putting it down, picking your foot up and putting it down in your next trial. Okay, so now we've gotten to what I think is actually the hardest part of the whole thing. I was setting you up, I guess. I did it all backwards. It's the first and hardest part of this passage. It's our attitude in the pain. Let's read it again. James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It clearly says from the very beginning here that the attitude of our heart in our troubles has to be J-O-Y, joy. That's what it tells us to do with every trial and every situation. It's only possible to obey this command, which it is a command, I think, when you look at the verses all at once. That's why I started with all of it and then picked it apart and then moved up to the top. Because you can't do this if you don't remember where God is taking you. At least I can't do it. So point number three is this. Let the goal improve your attitude. Let the goal improve your attitude. And the first word is the key to this text. It says we are to count. It's also the word consider. But what it really means is just think about it. What you need to think about in your trials is joy. It's as simple as that. What you need to think about in your trials is joy. As I've said, it's an imperative. It's a command, which means joy in our trials has to be, as one writer called it, our settled conviction. It has to be our intentional choice, in other words. We have to choose to think about our troubles with joy. <sighs> to be joyful in our trials is not the natural response, but it has to be the supernatural response for Christians. We are different than all the other people walking the planet that don't have salvation, don't have God, don't have the Bible, don't have the church, don't have the Holy Spirit. We are different. It should be the supernatural choice for us. The Bible never tells us to grit our teeth and just get through the root canal of the life he gave you. It doesn't say that. In fact, this is exactly the opposite multiple times. You remember rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. That is in multiple places in our Bibles, not just in James 1 here. We have to choose to be happy. It is an act of our will to choose to be happy. But the text goes even farther, and he makes it even harder because he says we are supposed to possess all joy. Ay, yeah, yeah. Thanks, James. This means you're supposed to have nothing but joy the next time you have a flat tire or whatever the problem is. Nothing but joy. What? Oh, that's so hard. But then I love the fact that it says, let's read it again, count it all joy, what? My brothers. 
It's at this point that James reminds us he's our godly older brother. You know, he's the brother of Jesus. He could have stood aloof. Remember yesterday, last week he told us he was a servant. Now he's telling us, I'm with you. I'm one of you. Yeah, Jesus was my brother, but I'm with you. And it's almost like he's putting his arm around us. Count it all joy, my brothers. You can do this. We've got this. We're together in this. We just read it this week. Ecclesiastes 4.9, right? Two are better than one. It's like, all right, we can do this together. We can choose joy, and we can help each other choose joy, right? Remember I said, don't make me a liar. Help them choose joy. You choose it, you help them. We do it together. We don't choose joy because the situation is pleasant. We do it because God has a purpose. That's what I've been talking about this whole time, the purpose God has for your trials. Point one was that, point two was that, and now we're talking about your attitude, which we have a good attitude because of the purpose God has. Remember, he's making a steadfast, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So let the goal improve your attitude. One pastor, one of my favorites, Warren Wiersbe, said this, if we value comfort more than character, trials will upset us. If we value the physical more than the spiritual, we won't be able to count it all joy. And if we live only for the present and forget the future, trials will make us bitter, not better. Mm. And of course, as Christians, you know there are plenty of things that we could be choosing to be joyful about that have nothing to do with our trial. I don't care what you're facing. If you're a real follower of Christ, there are some things that are true about you that you should be filled with joy. One of them is that you're born again. You are not the same person. I don't care if you became a Christian a week ago or five years or 50 years ago. Are you the same person as you were before you became a Christian? No way, no how. You are remade. You now have a heart that beats for God. You now have a heart that looks at the Bible and you can understand it. Do you realize your non-Christians can't understand it? They have never had their eyes opened. You are born again, okay? You also have forgiven everything that you ever did, everything that you will do has been paid for and it won't be by you. That is something to rejoice over. How about you're going to heaven? This life is not all there is. You will live forever in a perfect place. Awesome. Those are all things that are important to have joy about. Even, even things like uh, that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is with us. Do we have a lot to be joyful about? You bet we do. This is why even the martyrs could leave the planet Rejoicing, singing hymns, and smiling. Who, by the way, were being shot, hung, burned, and drowned. But they were going to see him. In five minutes, I'm going to see him. In an hour, I'm going to see him. No matter how treacherous the path they took to get there, they were filled with joy. So joy is possible even in our most horrific situations because it's a God thing. God can make it happen in us. It's a fruit. It's a proof of our commitment and relationship with him. So how do we keep that positive attitude in pain? I've been in pretty intense, painful situations a handful of times in my life, and these are the kinds of things that I did. I actually did what I'm going to tell you to do. Um, and I have three of them for you to keep my joy. I have three of them for you, so A, B, C, okay? But I am going to warn you, B has subpoints. Okay? So it's enough said. All right. A, first thing you did to hang on to your joy is clean up my mind. 
clean up my mind. Nothing kills a good attitude better than you just sitting there thinking about how rotten your life is in this trial. That's going to suck any possibility you have of joy out of your mind, which also means you cannot be dwelling on all the what-ifs. What if my husband doesn't get another job? What if my son never becomes a Christian? What if I never get over this debilitating disease? Okay, well, number one, the what-ifs don't happen most of the time. They're not real. They're not true. I wouldn't even say nine times out of 10, it doesn't happen. I would say 95 times out of 100, those things, those what-ifs never happen. And if they do, you're going to go back to this text. If you're really in those 5% of things that did happen to you and it was the worst thing you could have, side effect, oh, I took ibuprofen for a week when I was pregnant. I'm sure that my child's going to have this, right? Just, would you stop looking things up? Clean up your mind. Don't do that, okay? All right. B, think positively. Think positively. I do not mean your best life now, okay? The positive thoughts I'm going to have you think of are all Bible principles, okay? So this is where our subpoints are going to be. You have a void in here. You've just gotten rid of all bad stuff. You've got to fill it with good stuff or something else will come in there that you do not want. So let's fill it with good stuff. Um, there's, here's three Bible principles to think positively about. One is that God is for me. God is for me. Romans 8, 35 to 39 says that nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing. And the first things on the list are tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, and it goes on and gives you a whole bunch of stuff and basically leaves room for nothing (laughs) to separate you ever from God's love, okay? Second one is God is my comforter. So this is number two, God is my comforter. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says he's the father of compassion. He's the God of all comfort, and he comforts us in all our troubles, the Bible claims all of them. He's my comforter. I mean, think about Elijah. Here's just one example. Elijah. He did all this great stuff, prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel came after him and she said, I am going to kill you. And I am going to search for you all over the kingdom. She's the queen. And I'm going to make sure you get destroyed. He's scared. He runs off. God brings him food from birds. Hello, the crows that are in my driveway. They're just going to bring me food tonight. He brought me food. And then he brings him sleep. And if you just think about sleep for a minute, think of your worst trial in your life. Were you able to sleep? I'm not. I mean, that's when you're tossing and turning and you're afraid, you're, what's going to happen tomorrow, right? He slept not once, but twice, if I remember the story right. And then he ends up being taken care of by the widow of Zarephath. Here's a woman who ends up giving him shelter and food for the rest of the famine. God was the comforter of Elijah, and he brought him what he needed. Okay, number three, and think positively, is God promises me a better future. God promises me a better future. Romans 8.18 says that none of the pain you face, I don't care how bad it is, chemo, surgery, non-Christian husband, I don't care what the pain is, none of the pain will last forever. Every single problem we have, even if yours is terminal or permanent, we have diagnosis of that in my family too. It's all permanent. No, it's not, because it only lasts while I'm here. It only lasts while my daughter's here on the planet. Is it permanent? No way, because she's going to live forever. 
all of the pain is going to end when we cross the threshold of this life. And we're going to a perfect place where we will live for millions and billions, gazillion years, and we'll look back on this and realize this was so small. That brings us unending joy no matter what today holds. So we're cleaning up our brain and we are thinking positively. The third thing I do in the midst of my hard times is letter C, get busy helping others. Get busy helping others. Nothing gets me out of a funk faster than getting myself all wrapped up in helping somebody else. It's joyful to really help somebody else do something for them. It changes my attitude too, because you know what I realize? I realize everything's not all about me. Carlene is not the center of the universe. And when I'm you know, weeping in my bed in the fetal position, it's hard to think that. But once you start helping others, you realize I'm not the center of the universe. And frankly, everything is not really that bad. When I help other people, I realize that too. Everything is not really that bad. In fact, you know, even though some of my trials last years, they're still not that bad. There are people that are surviving much worse on this planet than any trial God has ever given me. And probably yours too. I mean, we just talked about the martyrs. Anybody at that stage? Okay, just checking. God gave us an obscure little book in our Bible also to motivate us to have joy. And that is the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet during one of the worst times in Israel's history. Under the most wicked king there was, Manasseh, who ended up putting them in the Babylonian captivity. And interestingly enough, God allowed Habakkuk to ask questions that you and I could never ask. And in his sovereignty, God recorded the, the dialogue in our Bibles for us so that we never get as snarky as Habakkuk did. But here's some things that Habakkuk wanted to know. Why is there injustice in the world? Why do evil men prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? And how come God doesn't do anything? Woo-wee! You want to go read Habakkuk, you'll get some of those answers. But God says compassionately, evil won't last forever. I know what's happening, and Babylon's going to be punished. Even though they're a wicked nation who came in and took you over, they're going to be punished someday. And by the end of the book, Habakkuk is a new man. And in verse, chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, he says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, there's no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock is cut off, there's no herd in the stalls. In other words, I've lost everything. I don't have food, clothing, vehicles, house, everything's gone. He says this, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and he makes me tread on the high places. Even in the midst of our worst nightmares, we need to remember people like Habakkuk and know that God knows all about it. And hopefully this lesson, this message, even this small group will be the catalyst which will help you ah, remember the goal and change your attitude. Now all this talk of God's testing and trials remind me of a little rock that I met this summer. The little rock's name was Nugget. And Nugget was very happy. Nugget was living underground in the darkness and he enjoyed his life very much. Until one day a big rain came, and when the big rain came, it kind of washed some of the dirt off of Nugget, and now all of a sudden, a little corner of him was sticking out in the sunshine for the very first time, and Nugget did not like it. He fretted, he got frustrated, and he started to complain. It was also about that time that a kindly old man came by with his walking stick, and he dug, he pried, and he got little Nugget out of the ground. Do you think Nugget liked that? No siree. He was very mad. He started raging, why me? Why do bad things happen to me? But the old man just picked up the rock and put it in his pocket and walked home. Now Nugget complained the whole way. It hurt to get dug out of the ground. 
He was traveling in an unfamiliar place. He was going to an unfamiliar home. He was not happy, and he made sure everybody knew it. When he got home, the old man looked over Nugget very carefully, and he said, beautiful. And then he picked up a cloth, he put it in some warm water, and he began to scrub the dirt off of little Nugget. And of course, Nugget's struggling against him, saying, why me? Why do bad things happen to me? Right? But before the man went to sleep that night, he looked at Nugget and he said, hey, Nugget, tomorrow is going to be a very important day. You should get some rest. Of course, you know Nugget tossed and turned all night long, right? Didn't sleep. When the sun rose, the man began stoking his fire, making it nice and hot. And that's when Nugget noticed for the first time that up on the shelves over the man's head, there were all kinds of vases and jars, and they were beautiful. And they were all looking at him and smiling down at him. And that's when Nugget looked at himself. He realized how ugly he was, and he was embarrassed, and he just wanted to go home under the ground in his nice, safe little place. The man said, hello, Nugget, I'm the refiner. I love you, and I'm going to make something beautiful of you. And then Nugget, he put Nugget inside this long-handled spoon. And what did he do? He stuck Nugget right into the middle of the fire. And it hurt, and Nugget cried out, and he said, but there's nothing wrong with me. I do not want to be refined. Well, the other pieces were all looking at it compassionately from up on the shelves, but the man kept him there for what seemed like forever. Nugget was sure that he was done for, and he was saying, why me? Why do bad things happen to me? And the man whispered to him, I'm here, and I will never leave you, little Nugget. When the little rock had given up all hope of his survival there in the fire, the refiner finally pulled him out, and Nugget saw that he was all melty, and he had a bunch of yucky gunk on him. Well, the old man quickly wiped that off and threw it away. And then he proceeded to take a little nugget and put him back in the fire in the hottest spot there was. And he did it over and it over and over again. And Nugget did not think he could stand it another minute. The old man then took him out, scraped him off a little, and began to stare with him at him intentionally. <sighs> Look at him so hard. And Nugget said, why me? Why do bad things happen to me? To which the man smiled, and little Nugget realized that he had never felt more loved than in that moment. And that's when Nugget turned to one of the vases and said, what's he doing? <laughs> to which the vase said, he's looking for his reflection in you. And every time he takes off some of that gunky stuff, it just makes it clearer. Well, before the man closed up for the night that night, he took Nugget, who was all melty, and he poured him into a mold. And he said, good night, little Nugget. I love you. Well, the next morning, Nugget woke up, and he said, good morning, all, as he stretched. And he chanced a little look down there at the refiner's bench. You know, he loved what he was becoming. And he loved all the attention he was getting from the refiner, but he was also pretty scared about what was still left to come on that workbench. But he realized that there was no one he trusted more than the refiner. Well, that day, the man took him out of his mold, and he began to scrape him and sand him for hour after hour, until at last he finally wiped him off, and the old man smiled, and finally the rock understood that all the old man had done for him was for his good. The old man said, beautiful. And then he set him up on the shelf with everyone else. That's when Nugget understood for the first time he was no longer a rock. He was now a masterpiece. And he was so happy. And then he noticed there was another little rock down on the table. 
And he became even more thankful for all that the old man had done for him, how he loved him, how he cleaned him up, how he shaped and molded him into something beautiful, even though it hurt a whole lot. And he stopped saying, why me? Why do bad things happen to me? Because now he knew. Ladies, I want you to remember Nugget because your trials are there for a reason. He is making something beautiful from you as you stop resisting his will for you. Let's pray. Dear God, I am incredibly grateful that each one of the nuggets in this room, you were in the process of shaping and molding because you love us. I thank you so much for the fact that you're making us more useful in our trials. I thank you so much that you're giving us more steadfastness, more ability to hang in there in painful situations. And that every day you give us the ability to pick our foot up and put it back down again and pick it up and put it back down again. I'm thankful that we don't do this alone. And I'm thankful, God, that even though it's so hard, that you are going to help us to choose joy and to help those around us choose joy as well. Um, we're so grateful for you being the refiner in our lives, God. May we stop resisting your will. In Jesus' name, amen.